Hello and welcome to the Deeper Eye podcast. I am Lara Ferris, your host. For many years, I have been passionate about self-improvement. Through this, I have met the best specialists in their field who have given me tools and the courage to pursue a new path. The purpose of this podcast is to share with you everything I have learned through the conversations I have had with these amazing people. I hope these conversations will impact your life as they did to mine. Today I will be sharing with you a conversation I am having with Shomit Mitter. Shomit has been my mentor and teacher for over 10 years and the amount of wisdom and knowledge this man has is sometimes overwhelming. I have regular sessions with him and the hour honestly flies by. Today I've asked him to join me to revisit a conversation I often have with him about the things that happen to us that we are not choosing or necessarily expecting. When it's a bad event that happens, we always turn it into bad luck. Or sometimes we say, what have I done to deserve this? There is a lot of guilt sometimes, and sometimes there is a lot of victimhood. And both of these feelings are not necessarily useful or helpful to have. So... I would like to share with you his view on that, and I think you will really enjoy the conversation around karma. He is going to talk about how much responsibility we have in our decisions and in what happens to us. I hope you will find this very useful. Shamit, I was thinking a lot about our last conversation, and this is why I've asked you today to record it, because I found it extremely useful. I know in previous sessions, we always touch on this subject. It's very vague if I say it's about karma. It's not at all just about that, but it's more about how do we perceive every situation that we live in our everyday life. Some of the situations that happen are very happy ones. Anyway, that's how we describe it. We say that's happy because it's either what we always wanted or something that is easy to live. And sometimes we have situations that we really did not choose at all. And we were convinced and nearly certain that we were working towards a totally different outcome. And if it's okay with you today, I'd like to focus on this part, the part that we do not like, the part that really disturbs us when it happens to us, the part where when it happens, we either go into victimhood or we go into saying that we are completely unlucky, that it's unfair, that is not at all what we work towards. The reason why I would like to focus on this today is because this is this generates a lot of suffering for me anyway, and I'm sure a lot of people are feeling the same. Can you first tell me again 
in your opinion and in your experience, why some people think it's they are victim and others feel they're just, you know, unlucky and others feel that it's all their fault. There is the guilt invading them. And what's your opinion on that? Could it be just our fault, what things happen when they happen to us that we don't like? Or is it something that we are nearly incapable of controlling? Okay. This is a massive question, but you've actually asked two questions in one. One is, what actually is the mechanism by which we, you know, things happen to us, which I can explain. We, you, you used a word there, which is much misunderstood, I think, mm-hmm. karma. It's a very big concept. But the second question embedded in that question was how different people accept what happens to them. And some people don't accept, and some people think it's their fault, and some people blame the stars or something out there, etc. So there is, what is the mechanism by which things happen? And there is the whole separate question of why do some people yes. react in a certain way and other people react in another way? Now, I will deal with the first one first because that's the bigger question. Now, in a lot of, I'm from India, and in a lot of ancient Indian systems, which have a tremendous wisdom about them, there is this big concept, which is, which is quite widely known in the West, which is mm-hmm. karma. What's not well understood in the West is what actually karma is. Karma means action, literally action, and its consequence. The implication for that which happens to us in our lives is that everything that happens to us is a consequence of an action. And of course, if it's my karma, it's a consequence of an action that I have taken. Now, actions have consequences in Buddhism, actions have consequences in two ways. One is immediate. So if I hit yeah. my hand, you heard the sound there, it hurts immediately, right? So that's an immediate reaction. That was an action and a consequence. But sometimes consequences are delayed over a long period of time. So you could, age 70, develop a back problem and you go and see the chiropractor and they do a scan. And the MRI shows a very old injury. And the person says, oh, you had an injury. Did you have some injury when you were about five or six years old? He said, oh, yes, but I was fine after that. What happened? I fell off a horse. Well, when you fell off a horse at age five, you injured yourself. At the time, you were fine, but it set something in motion, which you're now feeling because you're much older at age 70. So this is now a delayed Uh reaction. Now, that is well within what we understand. But there's a third order, a far more important order, which is widely misunderstood or not even remotely understood in the West, which is that what happens to us in this life is often a consequence of what happened in a past life. Now, a past life is gobbledygook in the West. I mean, how do we even know? But there's a lot of research around past lives, and I'm going to just touch on this because it's so germane to the answer. So a person who did a lot of research on this was a person called Ian Stevenson in America. He died recently, I think. And he wrote many volumes, and he collected a lot of cases, case studies of people who spontaneously remembered past lives. Children often spontaneously remember past lives, and they try them out with their adult parents, and the parents tell them to shut up and sit down and stop talking rubbish. And it gradually fades. 
I'll tell you just very quickly one story of a girl in India who kept saying to her parents that her real parents were in this other town down the road and that she had died and now she was born to these parents. And they used to say, oh, come on, stop it and go and do your homework. Stevenson got to hear this for some reason because there was a traveling salesman who went from town to town, as we do have in India. And he said, actually, there is a couple in that village that did lose a daughter some years ago, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So Stevenson heard about it, I think it came out in the local press or something. And he turned up, and you can imagine the scene in a small Indian town, with all this crowd have gathered and all these Americans there with their mics and their cameras and so on. And they got the other parents and put them somewhere in the crowd. And they asked the girl to identify those parents. And she, with tears in her eyes, said, am I allowed to? And they said, yes. And she unerringly went and identified those people. And then she, they took her to the other town and they said, find your home. And she went, you know, sort of singing down the street and then saying, oh, my God, that's terrible. That was my park. I used to play there. They built a shopping thing there now. I mean, how have they done that? And they've done this. And she found her house. She went and found her room. And then with a wicked look in her eyes, she said, I hid a toy here, which none of you will have found. And she undid a little floorboard and took out a little doll. She could not possibly have known about that. So, and there are many, I mean, Stevenson had many volumes of cases like this and so on. And this has been much studied, but as doesn't really fit with, you know, the materialistic West where all that exists is what Mm -hmm. I can see. So I'm just giving you that by way of a preface. So now you get a syndrome in which that delayed reaction is not from an injury at five years to 70 years old. It could be something that happened in a previous life that has its consequence in a later life because there's a continuum of consciousness. Yeah. Right? And this is, again, I mean, we're talking about it in a very cursory way here, but this is a very big subject. Now, a part of the work that I do is, of course, what sounds very mumbo-jumbo, but it actually is very important, life is past life work. So to give you one quick example, a very simple one, sometimes past life work is very complex. I had a client who said to me that she could never go to a beach because she used to tremble when every time she went to a beach. Now, the obvious thing is something traumatic happened to her as a child on a beach. So I asked her, when you were a child, did you go to a beach and did something traumatic happen? And she said, no, but my parents did say that the first time, the first time I ever went to a beach at age two or something, I was shaking, you know. So I immediately knew that this was a past life thing. Sounds very strange, but why should a child who's never had experience with the sea and the beach tremble? This is the Mediterranean, which is like a a swimming pool. It's not like some big waves and scary ocean. And of course, I did a past life with her. She had no idea what past lives were about, but I did it in a very light sort of way, which is what I do. I don't do it in a deeply immersive way. And of course, it was a slave story. And in her mind deeply imprinted in her mind was the wound around a beach means losing my family, losing my home. And then, of course, she was raped and killed on the galley and all the rest of it. It's a terrible story. And so the moment she sees a beach, she goes crazy. Now, of course, the good thing about past life work is that you can undo some of these patterns. So now she goes to beaches happily, you know, because she's aware of where it came from. You treat it in a past life in a certain way, and you can, you can heal that wound. Now, in, again, in Buddhism, you can undo some patterns and you can't others. And the metaphor that Buddhist teachers often use is if there's a toy train set and the train's going around and a, a toy soldier has fallen on the track and the train is going to, or a little child has got 
her finger on the track and you know that the toy train is going to come and hurt her finger, you can just put your hand out and stop the train. Mm -hmm. So those are like small karmas which you can stop. But they are big karmas that are like a real train on a real track. And if you happen to be on that track, you can't stop yeah. you know, the, the, the scale of it. So when things befall us in this life, negative things you're talking about, positive things as well, of course. I mean, karma is not just negative, it's positive as well. But you wanted to emphasize the negatives. Thing. Yes, today, yes. Understandably, because that preoccupies people. Some we can reverse and some we can't. So the smaller karmas we can reverse and the bigger things we can't because they have an inherent sort of power, which is very difficult to undo. And all we can hope to do is to do good things, be, be kind to people and all that sounds very bland, but it's actually very profound, such that we set up good karmas for ourselves in the future. That's just a very brief cursory outline of the background. Now, the first one that comes to mind, the reason why you can't stop or change these big, the big karma, we're going to call them here just for, you know, practical. Yeah, yeah. Is it because there is a lesson to learn from them or because it's just like a debt you have to pay? Ah, neither, neither. But it's more sophisticated answer than that. So it's not a debt. People often think, I mean, you can, you can frame it like a debt, but the point of it is not that you pay the debt. The point of that is completely neutral in terms of morality. That which happens has a consequence in cause and effect way. If I drop my glass, the water in it will spill on the carpet. That's not so that I learn a lesson from it, you know, etc. I can learn a lesson. I shouldn't leave my glass at the edge of the, uh, of the table. But the glass didn't fall in order to teach me the lesson. The glass just fell by the laws of physics. And so also something befalls me by the laws of cause and effect, which are the laws of karma. So there's no method in it whereby it's designed to teach me a lesson, but I can use it to my advantage by reading a lesson into it and learning the lesson. Oh, I shouldn't do this, right? So, it, so there's a difference. I you see the difference. See the difference. It doesn't come with the intelligence of teaching you a lesson. There's no bearded man in the sky who's dishing out a lesson. It is just cause and effect. The glass fell by the laws of physics. It's just the way it is. But I can learn the lesson. I shouldn't leave my glass at the edge. The second thing is, is it a debt? It's not a debt. That glass didn't fall in order to, that I get punished for something that I did that was wrong. It's not punishment. It's just, again, cause and effect. We're the ones who read into that the moral, the moral scheme, the morality, you know, uh, a debt, etc. You can frame it as that, but it's not purposed in that way. There's a thing in Buddhism called dependent origination. Things that occur have their origins in certain causes on which their existence is dependent, hence dependent origination. Everything you see in the world around you is dependent originated. Mm -hmm. Everything has a cause. The tree out of, outside your window is dependent, originated in the seed that was planted in the soil and watered in the sun. Those were the cause. They, they have this thing called causes and conditions. The causes and conditions cause that tree to grow. So the tree's existence is dependent, originated on the seed. And the seed, in turn, is dependent, originated on the tree out of which it came, etc. Yeah. Et so it's a pure cause and effect line. But we can use it to our advantage by learning lessons from it and so on. 
And just to touch on the question, the second question that you asked right at the start, which is, why do people react in different ways? It depends on a number of different factors. But in India, people are far more, usually far more at peace with certain negative things because they've grown up in traditions, whether it's a Vedant tradition, a Hinduist tradition, or a Buddhist tradition, and so on. They often grow up with the belief system that these things are karmic, and they tend, by and large, and I'm making a broad generalization, obviously everyone's not like that, but they tend often to carry that you know, sense that this is part of my karma, and so I accept it. And that's a very good attitude to have, actually, because the biggest tool that we can use to give us peace of mind in the face of negative circumstances is acceptance, first and foremost. The pain comes not because of the thing. The pain comes because we resist the thing. The thing could be painful in itself, but we compound the pain because of our resistance to it, our aversion to it. Oh, it shouldn't be like this. We may want to go to the park on Sunday for a picnic, but it rains. Now, that's a bummer. Yes, it's not nice. But I could be chilled about it and say, all right, fine. We'll have the sandwiches indoors. We play Monopoly. Mm-hmm. That's fine. So my lessened my pain. But the other person might say, oh, why is it raining? It's terrible that it's raining. They've increased their pain. The circumstances are the same. Yeah. This culture you're speaking about and, you know, how they, you grow up believing in karma, being told and people explain about this. There is so much peace in, in thinking that way because not only you, like you said, you accept that even though it's very hard to explain why things are happening the way they're happening without your wish of this situation, but it also influences you on how to react to this thing happening to you. You know, like we discuss you and I in, in my uh, private sessions, when you don't accept this, we're going to call it faith, it's more difficult to live and to get out of the situation or to heal from it. So when you resist it, my question here is for those people who don't believe that there is karma or it's very hard for them to just now accept that there is even the possibility of a past life or a future one for that matter. If you resist it, can you make your karma even worse? Are you missing the opportunity to to erase that karma and move on? I'll say two things about that. One is karma is a system that operates objectively, whether or not you are aware of it, whether or not you believe it. It's like the law yeah. of gravity operates whether or not you believe in it. I can't see yeah. gravity. Where's gravity? You know, I can't see it, smell it, taste it. But it op- operates. And this thing that I'm holding, will I drop it and it'll fall to the ground because of gravity, whether I believe it or not. So karma marches on whether or not you believe in it. Most people don't. A lot of people don't around the world. But karma applies to them as well. Yeah, because it's even less uh, possible to prove or touch or smell yeah. than gravity. Absolutely. Absolutely. But acceptance is something that you can practice without believing in karma. Karma is just one of the tools that I can be aware of. I can be, a, you know, I, I can factor that in and then that can help me get into a place of acceptance. But I don't need that. I can still establish that 
to be in a place of acceptance, however I get there, even if I don't have karma there, is to be in a place of greater peace than to be in a place of non-acceptance. Just like I said, if it rains on Sunday, if I accept it and say, it's all right, we'll have the sandwiches indoors, it's great fun, I haven't played Monopoly in years, come on, let's play. I'm in a happy money place, whereas the person who's non-acceptance, who says, oh God, I wish it wasn't raining, is in a place of greater pain. So at the very least, number one, I can be in a great place of peace mm. if I accept. And number two, in terms of the implications for karma, whether or not you believe in it, is that karma is not just about the consequences of your actions. It's also that actions have a way of becoming habitual. So if I learn the art of acceptance, whether or not I believe in karma, I will be in a I will be born with a greater sense of the value of acceptance quite naturally. And that's why you have some people who grow up, who work hard, and some people who are given to procrastination, and some people who are, they are habitual things that kids are, grow, are born with. And those are a product of patterns that have been ingrained in previous lives. So every time you learn a new life skill in this life, and you really perfect it, you are benefiting yourself in a future life. So you don't have to learn about karma to benefit your karma. You have to learn about things like acceptance or love or compassion or whatever, whatever the lessons you want that benefit you in a, pre in a future life, whether or not you believe in those things. Benefit you even in this life. If a student learns to work harder and not procrastinate, they'll benefit in this life. And if they really make it an ingrained pattern that they work assiduously, then work will come much more easily to them in future life. Every time I'm in conversation with you, we're talking about something, I'm on this path, and then there is so many doors on that path that, you know, by your stories or the explanation, I'm tempted to open. So I don't know if it's the right time to ask this, but it's very strong in, in my trying to understand a bit more about this acceptance that I have to take this opportunity and ask you. There is a very fine line in, in my understanding and, and in my practice every day between acceptance and in, in the healthy way and the acceptance into feeling defeated and not putting strong boundaries in life towards life or people that surround you. Can you touch base a little bit with, with that? Because it's very important for me. Thank you. Absolutely. absolutely. That's, that's a very good question. And people often mistake acceptance for a kind of passivity. But acceptance always goes hand in hand with action. Acceptance basically doesn't mean the lack of action. It means not being triggered by something. So an example that I often give is years ago, I was going out, uh, the kids and I were going out to dinner somewhere, and we came out to find that someone had hit my car on the side of the road. It was parked on the side of the road, and it had a great big dent in it. They didn't leave their number or anything. Now, I tend to be quite chilled about things, so I just shrugged and mm. said, oh, well, these things happen. And we went and had a rollicking great time at dinner, came back. That was a place of acceptance. But I then, the following morning, did take the car to the body shop and have it fixed. I did not say, God has sent a dent to my car and I must accept it. 
and I will always carry this dent because that is acceptance. That is not. That's, that's just foolish. So I did take an action to remedy the problem, but that action is not non-acceptance. The acceptance part of it comes from simply not being triggered in the moment. So when I see the dent, if I say, oh my God, look at this dent. I don't know what these people mean and how dare and how much it's going to cost me. Oh my God, this is ridiculous. That would be non-acceptance. I just shrugged and said, all right, these things happen. That's acceptance. But it's compatible with a model in which you also take an action to remedy the problem to the extent that you can. That's Even though you, you keep saying it to me, uh, I find it very difficult in the moment of practicing when things happen. I find it difficult to to discern the difference between, you know, accepting and and fighting for. I mean, I use the word fighting, but it's actually, you know, finding a solution to sort or live this situation in the best way for me. You know, and it's actually basically not throwing a tantrum when this happens. I think that is how I'm explaining it to myself with the acceptance is not throwing a tantrum, not crying on my faith, you know, and saying, oh, I'm so unlucky. This is unfair. That's probably the acceptance. It's not just sit and say, okay, that's what God wants for me and I'm doomed and I'm going to just sit in it and do nothing about it. Exactly. And the way, the answer in practice, how do you get out of that place where in the moment you can't do it effectively? And the way to do that is to use a technique that I, it's a very simple thing called day review. Day review means at the end of the day, you go back over the day and where you were in a place of acceptance, let's say, and you can apply this widely. You can apply this to a large number of concepts, not just acceptance, but let's just say acceptance for the moment. So at the end of the day, you look back over the day and you say, where was I in acceptance about something bad that happened? Ah, there and there. I received some bad news there, but I was actually quite chilled and practical about it. And there, hmm, well done, Lara. Well Hmm. done, me. And then you ask yourself, where was I not in acceptance? And you pick that time, oh, when this happened, I threw a tantrum and I had a hissy fit and I protested, you know, and that all the fates were arrayed against me and this was terrible and I cried and so on. So now instead of focusing on that, instead of castigating yourself for that, which only makes the imprint deeper, the more we focus on something, the deeper the pattern becomes. Instead of that, what we do is we just visualize a correction. We just simply sit there and we say, had I remembered about acceptance at the time, how would I have acted? And I visualize that a few times. And I say, yeah, I would have done this. Mm, I would have just shrugged my shoulders and said, all right, these things happen. You do that a few times, and it's exactly like the child who corrects a spelling mistake. The teacher never says, look at the wrong spelling. Look at the wrong spelling. Look at the wrong spelling. The teacher says, that was wrong. This is the right spelling copied out five times, and the new spelling imprints in the brain. Similarly here, the new behavior imprints in the brain. So the very, and once you've done that a few times, the brain learns and that has a forward-looking aspect. The next time you're in a triggering, potentially triggering situation like that, the brain says, oh, I know this situation. This is where we do this. We do acceptance. And it does it. Just like the brain automatically spells the, the word that you once got wrong 
correctly because you corrected it five times. You know, the reason I was um, very happy about our conversation today is it's the beginning of a new year. And I love starting this year with you because it feels like it's all a new page, you know, new beginning, new start. And no matter what life has brought to me and many people listening, there are, again, things that are happy, other things that are very challenging, other things that are extremely sad. And it's, I thought it was a great reminder to uh, sit and take every single situation that's presented to your life with this sense of acceptance and move from there with, uh, you know, finding the right solution or the right approach to, to sort it out. I just sometimes have lots of doubt in these approaches, you know, and of course you have advisors, I have, I'm lucky I have you, I speak to regularly, etc. But for people who don't, you know, they don't, they just have to take decisions after this, you know, having hopefully mastered this acceptance thing, and then they have to do something to repair or make better the situation they're in. Do you have any advice or something to tell them, like how to feel or to realize you're on the right path to, to take a right decision for your problem? Okay, that's, a, that's very good. And in, in order to do this, I'd like to introduce another concept from Buddhism, which is called, and it sounds like a big mouthful, it's, a, it's, it's, it's called the five omnipresent mental factors in Buddhism. And I'll tell you what they are, but yeah. then I'll explain them. So they are, the five are, Contact, you come into contact with things in the world. Attention, you focus on them. And then the third one, discrimination or discernment, judgment. You decide whether it's a good thing or not. And then that leads to yeah. feelings. If I decide it's a bad thing, I feel bad. If I decide it's a good thing, I feel good. And then the fifth in that series, of course, mm -hmm. is action. Intention yeah. and action. Action, remember, leads us back to karma because it's that action that I take that is going to have a karmic consequence. Now, I'll give you an example. If someone, you're out there in Portobello Market on a Saturday in this crowded, and someone touches your back, that is contact. What is the first thing you would do? Turn around. Exactly. So that is attention. Turn around to see who's touching yeah. my back. And then you see that it, when you focus, you see, oh, it's my old friend from childhood. So discrimination, that step says, Oh, this is wonderful. It's my old friend. You feel very good. And your action is you give them a hug. Now there's a sensation of someone touching your back. You turn around and look, and it's a complete stranger. So you decide it's a bad thing. Yeah. Discrimination step says it's a bad thing. The feeling is bad, fear. And your action is to withdraw or to slap the fellow and says, you know, get away. Right. So notice we started from the same sensation of a hand on your back. Yeah. And we went to a completely opposite action. One was a hug, one was a slap, right? I'm being simplistic. Yeah, but, yeah. You know. Now, the key step in these five is the middle step, the discrimination step. Because contact, we're going to come into contact with things in the world. We can't help it. Attention, it's good to give them attention. But the main step is the discrimination step. It's the discernment step. It's the judgment step. And the magic of the judgment step is to see how you can make a bad thing into a good thing. Yeah. 
how you can turn aversion into acceptance. And acceptance, not even acceptance, you can go a step beyond acceptance, which is to embrace it. And then you feel good about it. And then the action that you take is a good action, right? So, for example, if someone is a difficult person in the world, someone who's challenging in, in, in some way, maybe they are able to show you a fault or give you a training that you can't give yourself. So, for example, you know, let's take an example of the mother of a child who's learning boxing. The mother will be the worst trainer because she will not challenge the, the child at all. She will not punch the child hard in a sparring session. Whereas, so mother is a doddle, but not good. You know, so he sees mummy and he says, oh, lovely. He sees difficult sparring partner and he says, oh my God, this is difficult. But the difficult sparring partner actually is in that discrimination step. You can say, oh, this is terrible. Or you can say, this is a challenge. It'll make me better. And when you say it's a challenge, it'll make me better. You feel better about it and you engage with it. better. Right? Yeah. Do you see what I'm saying? I do. You go to the gym. You've got a trainer. They're going to put you through some difficult stuff. You can say, oh, God, this is terrible, in which case you feel bad about it, in which case you don't do the gym properly, you don't train. Or you can say, this is going to make me stronger. You feel good about it and you train better. Mm -hmm. So the main step is that middle step. It's the middle step that uh, is, takes you from this is a bad thing into what's the good thing here? And this takes us back to what you said about a potential lesson. Yeah. There's no intrinsic lesson in the thing. It's just that you can create a lesson opportunity that makes you feel good, that makes you take a good action, and then that is good karma. Yeah. We still have a few minutes. I really would like to use this five, how do you call them? The five? Omnipresent mental factors. Omnipresent mental factors. There are many, many, many mental factors, but these are the five most important. They're great. So that's a good, maybe, tool for people to use. Absolutely. When, and it, I think it's, I love the reassuring bits like that that you teach me yeah. because I, I use them daily. Can I yeah. take an, a specific example and try to put it like instead of using the touch, the tap on the back, for example? Yeah. Let's take this example. I have. A, a regular continuous fights with my sister about something concerning the family. And I feel every time she takes a decision, it doesn't go, it always goes towards what's good for her and not what's good for me. That's my version. Her version is what you think is good for you is not good for me. So it's, you know, we're both coming from like we we very often discuss you and I two different truths like that's her truth yeah. that's my truth so who's who can say what is right i i didn't find anybody like even if she talks to you and she you have her version you're going to feel it completely different to my version and you know maybe even you would, would how would you know which one is anyway we're not going to go there because maybe you could but it's is not very often that somebody can say, oh, that's the truth. So I give attention to that, to what's happening. I don't like it. So the feeling is, I don't like what she's doing to me. 
I really don't want this to happen. It's unfair. And then I have to take action. Okay, so can you tell me what part is the one where you turn the negative into positive without her taking advantage of that? Yeah. So the transformation takes place at that point at which you know what is your ultimate goal. So what is your ultimate goal? I would suggest, now this is for you to have, but one of the big goals that we, that we talk about in many spiritual systems is having sort of big compassion, you know, yeah. big sort of compassion. By big, I mean widespread, I mean, grand compassion I mean, for everybody and all the rest of it. However, that has to be dispensed from a place of power, of strength, of, in a boundary way. Yeah. So the love a mother has for a child, for example, is very much about giving them love, giving them kindness and so on, but also being strict enough to say, you know, you can't do that, do this. Both are within the business of love. It would be a very bad parent that said, yes, you can have as many ice creams as you want. I love you, right? So the child is loved by the parent in a way that is explicit and implicit. Explicit is, come, I've made your favorite meal for dinner. And implicit is, no, get off the phone. You need to go and do your homework. So authority and love together. Yeah. So when that, getting that right, for example, is one of your goals and you apply that to your sister, then it's not a question of who is right and who isn't because that's a very big uh, issue of, you know, everyone sees things, the world in, from their own point of view and all the rest of it. But what you need to master in that situation is that how is to answer the question how is this contact i have contact i have with my sister and i pay attention to it how can i get that to further my ultimate objective which is that good karma step which is furthering my wise mm-hmm. compassion and there you see her as posing a problem to you that practices this precise ability wow. and then you engage with it in a positive way and then you act in a positive way. What is that positive way? Is to give her a boundary sense of love. So you love her, you give her love and understanding and compassion, but where she is overstepping her mark, in as far as you're concerned, you say, and to be able to say no is exactly the same as we say no to a child, but we know that we are loving the child when we say no. It's a bad parent that never says no to a child. So... That business of love and authority at the same time is your goal. So when your sister appears with this problem, in the discrimination step, you don't say, oh God, this is difficult. Oh my God, she's creating such a problem for me. You say, wonderful. This is giving me an opportunity to practice wise compassion. And so I feel good about it, feeling. And then I act in a way that is warm, friendly, and loving to her, but also firm saying, sorry, sister, you know, I love you and I wish you well and all that, but that, that I can't do, whatever the particulars of it. Mm. Obviously, we don't want to get into the particulars of something no, like I that on a, on a public forum like that, but it would, there would always be a practical boundary line in the particulars of a situation. And that is how it doesn't become like a habit of her just doing whatever exactly. she wants. Exactly. And me not you know, reacting or stopping her. 
Yeah. yeah. So stopping someone is not a bad thing. It can be. And why is it a good thing? Why is it a loving thing? It's a loving thing in two ways. One, it helps the other person not overstep a boundary that they are habitually overstepping. So you're helping them with their karma. Yeah. yeah. If you stop someone doing something that you feel is the wrong thing, then actually you're helping them because you're helping them manage a boundary that perhaps they can't manage themselves. So you're doing them a favor even by saying no. My child wants to eat a third ice cream, but I stop them and I say, no, one ice cream is enough. Mm -hmm. I'm actually helping them even though I'm saying no. And of course, in this case, because that thing that she is doing is offensive to you, you too are benefiting yourself. Yeah. And that too is good karma. Understand. And uh, yeah. Totally good. It's time. I, I'm afraid to leave you. I'm really, I have so many more questions. Let's do this again. We can do this as many times as you want. We'll do it again if you don't mind next week. Let's do this every week. I'm, I'm, I'm up for this. I'm this so is very excited. good. For me and <laughs> This people. is brilliant. <laughs> Thank you, Shomit. You Thank you very week. much. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you, Shomit, again for joining me for this very insightful conversation. I hope you all really enjoyed my talk with Shomet and that you will be sharing this podcast with as many people as you feel would benefit from it. And I really look forward to recording my next episode very, very soon. Thank you very much for listening to the Deeper Eye podcast.